Sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23, 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. Hear now, this is God's holy word. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of, gr- of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Thus far the reign of God's word, let us give thanks. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your providential care for your word. We're grateful for the preachers, for the prophets, for the apostles, for the ones who put your word down. We're grateful for the ones who have been faithful to your word over the centuries to preserve it and keep it, that we might read it, study it, and hear it. Help us this morning not to waste this time, but to use it wisely and press upon our hearts those places where we need to be encouraged and press upon our hearts those places where we need to be rebuked. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Voltaire, sounds like a bad guy. He was. He was a bad guy. Voltaire was a bad guy. He was a French writer and a philosopher who lived from 1694 to 1778. He was not alive during the French Revolution, which was in the 1790s, but his ideas heavily influenced the French Revolution. Uh, He was loved by Napoleon, loved by a lot of people that um, built the guillotine and killed thousands. Um, he was not a good man. Most of these guys were not. Rousseau, guy, Marx, these guys were not good people. He was no different. He was a wicked man uh, and had numerous affairs, lots of ugliness. But he hated Christianity, hated it with a passion, and especially he hated this. He hated the Bible. He hated the Scripture. So listen to some of these quotes from him. He said, ours, that is the Christian religion, he doesn't mean ours as in his, it means ours is in France's, our Christian religion is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, the most bloody religion which has ever infected the world. Your majesty, he's writing to the king, your majesty will do the human race an eternal service by getting rid of this infamous superstition. I do not say you should get rid of it among the rabble who are not worthy of being enlightened and who are apt for every yoke. Let them stay bound. Let the little people stay bound. To that superstition. But I say among honest people, among men who think like me, of course, Voltaire, among who think, among those who wish to think, get rid of it. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise, the finest and most respectable what the human mind can point out. Okay, so he saw it as his goal in life to destroy the Christian religion. He said this, the Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and what young children are made to learn by heart. Speaking of the Gospels, he said, what folly, what misery, what puerile and odious things they contain, what contradictions, follies, and horrors. A few years before his death, he said it is impossible for Christianity to survive. So a lot of these guys at the time really thought that reason was going to triumph over Christianity. This was stupid, of course, but this is what they thought. Okay. He then proceeded to write, right before he died, a two-volume commentary on the Bible in which he mocked it, made fun of it repeatedly. And at the end of his commentary, he said this, the subject is now exhausted. The cause is decided for those who are willing to avail themselves of their reason and their lights. People will no more read the Bible. They're not going to read anymore. Okay, after I'm done with this commentary, okay? 
He believed that his commentary on the scriptures was the end of Christianity and the end of the Bible. Of course, that's ironic because Voltaire is dead and the Bible is still around, okay? The Bible's still here. What's even more ironic is 40 years after his death, his home in Geneva, he had numerous homes. These guys were wealthy and they had numerous homes. Home in Geneva, that home, about 40 years after his death, was used to house Bibles and evangelistic tracts, which were shipped all over Europe. Even more ironic is the town he lived in. I'm going to say it Fernie. It's in France, I'm sure. Some French speaker in there is going to kill me after the service. I don't know how you pronounce it in French, but it's, it's spelled in English, Fernie. Okay, so I'm going to say Fernie. Okay? He had a home in Fernie, France, where he published many of his works. And this town was kind of the fountain for a lot of his filth and a lot of his lies. Less than 30 years after his death, someone bought the printing presses in his town of Fernie and began to print Bibles on those printing presses. And so it is with all who hate the Word of God. All those scientists today who say the Word of God is folly and stupid, all those academics out there who tell you the Word of God is old, superstition, myth, only losers listen to it, they will die. They will be gone. The passage is going to tell us they will be gone, but the Word of God will not. The Word of God will endure. And this is what Peter wants us to get. One of the things Peter wants us to get from this passage is the enduring power of the word of God. Mockers are not new. They've been around since the Old Testament times. They've been around forever. People who mock the word of God and laugh at the word of God. What he wants us to see is the power of the word of God and not just as like an abstract idea, not just a cool idea, yeah, it's gonna be here, but as a way for us to love one another, okay? So there's a connection in this passage between our love for each other and this word, our love for the word and our love for each other are connected to one another. And that's what Peter wants us to see in this passage, all right? So it begins with a reminder that they are saved, that they're Christians. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. And both of those are descriptions of coming, becoming part of God's people, purifying your souls and obeying the truth. Probably not the way we would describe it, though. Yes, somebody how they became a Christian. They wouldn't say, well, I've purified my soul and I've obeyed the truth. It's probably not the way we would talk about it. But Peter talks about that way. The word purify is used almost exclusively of ritual purification. Getting ready, getting ready for a Passover. For example, in John eleven fifty five, 55, it's used of getting ready for the Passover. Three times in Acts, it is used of being purified and getting ready for a feast or purifying yourself for some sort of ritual, okay? So the idea here is purification, getting ready. And it's interesting that in verse 4, next time I preach, we get to the temple. Because you've got, you've got this purification, and then we'll see in a few minutes that you've got this eating in verse 3 of chapter 2, and then you come to the temple. There's this progression through from chapter 1, verse 22, into chapter 2, a priestly progression. Okay? And most people think that purify your souls is a reference to baptism. And that seems like a solid suggestion to me. And you might say, well, purifying your souls isn't baptism like an outward word. How does it reach your soul? Well, later on, Peter's going to say, baptism cleanses your conscience. Baptism is something that cleanses your conscience. So in the Bible, I'm not going to go into this in depth, but in the Bible, these outward acts, the outward preaching of the word, the outward eating of the sacraments, the outward pouring of the water has an inward impact. Okay? It comes inside of you. It reaches the soul. It reaches the conscience. It reaches the heart. It doesn't just stay out here. And if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to go listen to Pastor Garner's sermons on the sacraments from back in the spring where he explains that. Um, I think pretty clearly. Okay, so he says you've purified your soul, probably a reference to baptism, and you've obeyed the truth. Again, probably 
probably not the way we would describe conversion. But if you think about it, when I say that, if I'm talking to someone who's not a Christian, I say you need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to obey that commandment. They're supposed to obey that. They're supposed to repent. When Peter at Pentecost preaches to the thousands of people, and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, what are they called to do? They're called to obey that command. They're called to believe. When Jonah shows up in Nineveh, they're called to believe. So we might not talk about it like obedience. Jesus does in a couple places talk about obeying the gospel. Okay? We tend to think about believing the gospel, but Jesus talks about obeying the gospel in a couple places. This is a very good way to talk about conversion and, and coming in to be part of God's people and becoming part of the church and becoming a Christian. So Peter says, remember you are a Christian. You have purified your souls. You've obeyed the truth through the Spirit. Okay? There's a lot, this, pack, this passage is really packed. I'm going to mention a couple things here. I'll, I want to go into these more, but I'm not going to. But um, this passage mentions probably baptism, preaching the gospel, the work of the Spirit, and it probably mentions the Lord's Supper at the very end. Chapter 2, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So there's whole, all these liturgical ideas are in this passage, and many of these verses have been used in baptismal services and in communion services for hundreds of years. Okay? This is kind of a packed passage. And it makes sense when you get to verse 4 because you move through these liturgical steps and then you get to the temple. You get to the temple and the living stones and all that's being built up. Okay, so that's, I like to go on that, but that's not the main point of the passage. Okay, that's just something to think about and remember that often underneath the obvious, there are, there are things happening. And baptism and Lord's Supper are often in the background of those sort of things. Okay, so he, then he says, you're Christians, therefore love one another. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. It's interesting that back in chapter 1, if you remember the last sermon I preached, talking about good works and holiness, Peter wants us to be a people full of good works, full of holiness, be righteous people, doing good works. And the first place he goes to is love for one another. Okay? That's the first place he goes, would love one another. He's going to talk about the government. He's talking about employers, masters, slaves. He's talking about all sorts of situations. Unbelievers, you know, have a, be ready to give a defense for the faith that's in you. He's going to talk about all of that. But he starts with love for one another. And this is because good works and holiness begins with the people right in front of you. It begins with the people in this room. It begins with the people in your house. It begins with your kids and your spouse and the person behind you, the person beside you. This is where holiness and righteousness begins. And we have this tendency to be more concerned about people out there than we are about people in front of us. Okay, a good example is just apologetics and evangelism. Those are both great things. Okay? We should understand how to defend the faith. We should understand how to tell people about Jesus. All those are great things. Okay? But if you're not loving the person in front of you, they're no good. It's worthless to go out and try to evangelize people in the world if the people you know in this room and the people you know in your house, you're not loving. You're not being kind to. And you're not being gracious to. Okay? Paul says in Galatians, do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So good works begins in this church. It begins with the people around you. It begins with the people in your home. That's where you start. Okay? If you can't do it there, you're not going to do it out there. Okay? If you can't love your wife or love your husband or care for your kids or care for the people in this room, then you're not going to help. It's not going to do you any good to go out there and try to help out there. Okay? So Peter begins with what's closest, and he gives us two adjectives, pure and fervently, and in different translations that moved around. I'm going to start with the word pure. The word pure means clean. Okay? It's different from the word up in verse 22, 
where it says, well, early in verse 22, where it says purified. These are two different words, okay? So pure means clean. It's used of Jesus when he says, you have cleaned the outside of the dish, now clean the inside of the dish. We're to have a clean, sincere love, not a fake love. Okay, we've all been in groups of people where you know this guy over here really doesn't like this guy over here. Maybe it's a business meeting. Maybe it's a bunch of junior high kids hanging out. Common in junior high and high school, right? You're all hanging out. You all got smiles on your face, pretending you like each other, but you really don't like each other, and everybody knows you don't like each other. Or it's a business meeting where you know there's conflict and there's tension, okay? That is not the way it's supposed to be in the church. We are supposed to genuinely, from the bottom of our heart, love every single person that Jesus put in here, every single one, sincerely. And then then Peter says, fervently. This word is only used three times in the New Testament, once here and two other places. Two other places are really helpful. Luke 22, 44. What's happened in Luke 22? What's going on? Jesus is praying. He's praying in the garden in Gethsemane. And Luke tells us that Jesus was praying in the garden and he prayed more earnestly. And there's our word, earnestly. And what does it say after that? He bled. He sweated drops of blood. That's how fervently he was praying. That's what this word means. We're to love each other with that kind of love, that fervent, sweating out blood type of love. And that's what he's talking about. The other place it's used, again, in reference to prayer. It's interesting. Both of these are in reference to prayer. Acts 12, 15. What's happened in Acts 12? Well, James is dead. James is dead. James, the brother of John, is dead. And Peter's in prison. All the leaders of the church are in trouble. Okay? These two great pillars of the, commu- of the church are gone. Okay? And so what do they do? They pray fervently. They pray fervently for Peter to be released. You can read about Acts 12. And what's surprising, of course, is they're shocked when he is. They're like, whoa, what happened? Okay? But both of these are in reference to this deep, strong prayer. This is what our love is supposed to be like. So I think you get the picture. This is not a weak, soft, easygoing love. It is a fervent, earnest love, a love that bleeds for one another, a love that prays for one another. Okay? Mrs. Chamley has put together a directory with names and pictures of all you, mainly for me because I forget who you are. <laughs> no, not just for me. <laughs> But she's put all this together. You can go right down the list. Start, oh yeah, we'll pray for A's. A's, we'll go down the list and you can pray for these people. Pray fervently for them. Interesting the word fervently. I don't know what Peter exactly has in mind here, but the two other uses of this word in connection with prayer. So certainly we should be praying fervently for one another. We should be loving one another, caring for one another in that way. How often do you lift up the members of the congregation? How often do we do that? Probably not as often as we ought to, okay? Like Jesus did there at the garden, okay? So we pray fervently. And so we're to love one another with this fervent, pure, clean love. That's the idea, okay? And as you know, the phrase to love one another is used dozens of times in the New Testament. Okay? The word love is mentioned over 40 times in John's epistle, which is not very long. It's mentioned dozens of times in John's gospel. Paul mentions it. Peter's mentioned it. Love one another. Why? Why are we so often exhorted as Christians to love one another? Why is that there so much? One reason is it's a picture of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus says, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Okay? But I think the other reason is, is because often we have this picture of love that is more like the love of the world. And so the New Testament has to kind of undo this for us. We think of love as liking something. It's kind of how we view it. Love is liking something, you know, like a sports team. Okay, maybe you like a certain sports team. And why do you like that sports team? Well, maybe you saw them when you were six years old and you like the stars on the side of their helmet. You're like, well, cool. There's Emmett Smith and there's Troy Aikman. Here's all these players. This is great. I'm going to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. I like these guys. That was me. Okay. 
I've since repented of that sin. Okay? I've since repented of that. All right? So we like it for, we, lo- we, lo- we think of love as things we like. You know, I like this group of people. I love hanging out with those people. What do you mean? I like those people. Okay? But that's your choice. The church doesn't belong to you. The church belongs to Jesus. And he puts whoever he wants in here. And guess what you're required to do? And I'm required to do. We're required to love whoever Jesus puts in here. And there might be people you don't like. Yeah? Might not like the way their face looks. Might not like their hairline. They might not like their voice might be too high or too low. Okay? You might not like the way they decorate their house. Okay? It could be a whole host of things. So, we do, so I think the reason the New Testament writers so frequently talk about love is because we have such a bad idea of what it is. Love is not liking something. You should like people. That's a good thing, obviously. But love in the Christian church is choosing to pour out your affection on these people that out there you may never associate with. Okay? You may never talk to. I've often thought about that. How many of you would I be friends with if I was in a church with you? The answer is probably none of you. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The answer is probably not a lot of you, okay? I'm married in, I mean, we're, I'm family with some of you, so I have to be friends with you. But, but, I mean, but, that, but that's what Jesus does, right? He takes all these people from different backgrounds and different, and he says, I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. And it's not liking, it's not like the world, it's not like a team, it's loving one another. So this is the love that Peter tells us to have, this fervent, sincere love for one another. And then he says, he reinforces this love by going to God's word. He says, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This powerful word of God. All flesh is his grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, Voltaire is gone. The flowers fall away, Voltaire is gone. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So he's reinforcing this love for one another by a reference to God's word. He wants us to understand the power of God's word that is enduring and it is strong. Okay? That's his goal. He wants us to remember that this word that causes us to be born again is also the word that will sanctify us. We'll see that in a minute. Sanctify us and will allow us to love one another. Okay? Let's talk about the power of God's word for a minute. Many of you know this, but let's just refresh our memory with this. God created the world through his words, okay? The world did not exist. There was nothing, okay? There was n- nada, okay? <laughs> it's hard for us to imagine that. There was nothing. And God talked, and there was something. And then God talked, there was the sun and the moon and the stars. And then God talked, and there was people, and there were animals, all of it. God spoke it into existence. And so from the very beginning, you see the power of God's word. And all throughout the Bible, that is the case. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, make it to bring forth and sprout, give me seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that comes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word never returns void. Okay, never. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he doesn't like come out and spread a bunch of animal blood everywhere and do all these weird rituals. He just says, hey, Lazarus, come out here. Come forth, Lazarus. That's, we read that, and I think we're so used to reading it, we miss how crazy that is. That he just talks, and this guy comes back from the dead by his word. Okay? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, what does he do? He quotes the Bible three times. Deuteronomy, 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 three times he quotes the Bible. He's Jesus. He could have said whatever he wanted to say, but he chose to use the Bible. 
I chose to use the Bible. When the 3,000 are converted, oh, the other one I wanted to mention was just the calming of the storm. Okay. Think about that for a minute. Here, he just stands up and talks to the storm, and the storm stops. Okay. And then think about how ineffective your words are in comparison to that. Okay. When's the last time you told your child to stop, and it was like, boom? Okay. Now, it does happen occasionally. We're all grateful for the occasional times it does. Okay. But generally, our words are not that effective. And Jesus isn't talking to a person. He's talking to a storm. He's like, be still in the storm. Still. There's power in the word of God. And of course, the whole thing is Jesus' word, not just the words he speaks in the gospel. All of it belongs to Jesus. Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and sharper than the intuitive sword. Yes, the sword will cut you, but not like the word of God. The word of God does something different, more effective, more powerful. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed is useful, useful for correction, for training, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How are you going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work? This book right here. So this power of God's word. Peter is strengthening our trust and our confidence in God's word. We often want something other than the word of God. As human beings, we get tired easily of things. We get bored of things very quickly. And this is why you have churches that have all this sort of um, crazy drama up front, all this wild stuff they're doing, you know, things like that. They're, they're, they're either tired of the Word of God or they've lost confidence in the Word of God. Okay? But for us, the Bible must be central. It must remain central. We must keep it central all the way through. Okay? Not just in theory, but in reality. When we pick it up, God is speaking to us. The Spirit... Uh, uh, Pentecost, I said this, I'll say it again. Whenever we read the word of God, the Spirit is always there. Always. You don't have to guess. Spirit, no, the Spirit is there. The Spirit is attached in a sense to the word of God. Okay? We, we, we read it. Now we can rebel against it. We can ignore it. We cannot be faithful to it. But every time you read the word of God, the Spirit is there. Right? So just one note about how God uses the word. Um, it's interesting, at the beginning of, the, of chapter 1, we hear this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in that verse, who is giving us new birth? God the Father is. Okay, God the Father. Well, he uses the exact same word in verse 23. Having been born again through the word of God. Okay. So in verse 3, it's through the Father. In verse 23, it's through the word of God. And what I want you to see is God works through through means, okay? God does not magically save people with like lightning strikes from heaven. He works through stuff. He works through this. He works through people. He works through the bread and wine. He works through the water of baptism. He works through things. He works through you guys as a body, as people, okay? Sometimes I think we have this picture of salvation that just kind of drops down out of heaven magically not connected to anything. Okay? That doesn't happen. I mean, God could do that, of course, and occasionally he does miraculous things. I'm not going to deny him that. Right, obviously he can. But generally, ordinarily, there's a rut God uses to accomplish salvation, and that rut runs through the Word of God. Okay? The Word of God is the means the Lord uses to give birth to his people and to sanctify his people. That's kind of Peter's point here, the strong Word of God. All right? And don't miss the, miss, miss the emphasis there in verse 25 on the preached Word. Obviously, you want to read the Word, but the emphasis in here is on the preached Word. Word of God. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Okay, so because we have this word going on to chapter two, 
Because we have this word, therefore we're to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Now, when you think about great sins, Ten Commandment sins, big sins, these, these probably don't make the list. Okay? Um, but remember, Peter's emphasizing our love for one another. These are sins that specifically corrode Christian love. These are sins that destroy Christian community. Okay? Malice, just a word for general wickedness. Okay? Deceit, fraud, lying, cheating, betrayal. Okay? Hypocrisy, we talked about that earlier. Just pretending. Just coming to church and pretending. Envy. Envy. Tell my kids all the time, there's always going to be someone who has more than you. Always going to be someone that's going to be better looking than you. No matter how good looking you are, there's always someone better looking than you. I know some of you might have a hard time believing that, but it's true. Some people are better looking than you. There'll be people who have better upbringings than you had. Some of us had rough upbringings. You look at that, Lord, why don't you give me that? Better jobs, sometimes people more athletic. You know, some of us are not as athletic as others, and we're like, Lord, why couldn't you make me, you know, six foot five and able to jump through the roof? Why can you make me like that? Okay? And whenever we think that way, whenever that envy creeps in, it creates tension between you and other people. Because every time you look at that person, you see somebody who has more, and you're jealous. And even if it doesn't spill out, it's there, and it destroys Christian community and destroys Christian love. Envy corrodes Christian love. We cannot love one another for envious. We need to be grateful for what the Lord has given to others, not envious of what the Lord has given to others. Then obviously evil speaking. Okay, we are so flippant with our words sometimes when it comes to other people. We so easily say things about other people that we should not. Text messages, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? You know, social media down there, instant messaging people, hey, have you heard about her? What's going on with her? You know, and we, and we kind of chat and we talk about people, thinking of gossip and slander. You know, evil speaking, talk bad about people, destroys Christian community. We cannot love one another if that's how we're conducting ourselves. So Peter's saying we need to put these things aside. And the laying aside there means to take off some clothes. It's usually referring to taking off clothes. You take off all this malice, all this deceit, all this hypocrisy, all this envy, and all this evil speaking. Again, back to my liturgical point, this verse was used a lot of times in baptismal services. And the people who were getting baptized would take off their clothes and put on a robe. Okay? And the picture was you're taking off all this evil and putting on the righteousness of Christ. All right? Put on the then he says, and this is the connection I want you to make this morning, the key connection. Now, hopefully you remember the whole sermon. I hope you remember all the points, and afterwards you can outline it all. But if you just remember one thing, remember this. There is a deep connection between your love for God's word and your love for your neighbor. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You cannot love the people around you in this building if you do not love the word of God, if you do not desire the word of God. Okay? And we got lots of babies in here. The baby's coming every time. <laughs> We're talking to Pastor Garner for the service. Every time there's another baby coming in the door. Like, who's that? Who's babies that? Babies everywhere. Babies love to eat. Let's be honest. Kids love to eat. I mean, I don't have any babies around, but six, seven, eight years old, when's snack time? Is that all the food we have? When we have more food? Kids are always hungry. Babies are always hungry. They want food. We are to be like that with God's word. Always hungry for God's word. Longing to read it. Longing to talk about it. Longing to memorize it. Longing to spend time digesting it. Meditating on it. We can't do that every day. But there should be times in your life where you sit down and you're not spending 10, 15 minutes with God's word. You spend an hour and you're going over the text over and over again and you're praying through it. In our service, okay, 
We have a lot of the Bible, and this is the reason why. We don't want the Bible to be a priority in our heads. We want it to be a priority in real life. We have four readings. We sing the psalm, and then we have a lesson, an epistle, and a gospel reading. Okay. Why four? Seems long. Elder gets up there. I'm going to zoom zone out. You know, gets those long readings. We get distracted. Why so much Bible? Because the Bible is a priority. The Bible is a priority. It's at the center of the Christian life. And if we don't keep it the center of our worship, we cannot love one another. We can't do it. You might think, yeah, I can. You can't. So let me give you a few just ways you can keep the Bible central. I'll give you a couple of ways you can do that. First, come in here ready to listen. Come in here ready to hear. Okay, I mean, the emphasis in the passage is not just on the written word, although that's there. The emphasis in the passage is on the preached word. Come hungry to hear the word of God every Sunday morning. Okay, that can be hard. Be lots of distractions, you know, kids, things happening on the way here. Somebody cut you off in traffic, you get angry, whatever it is. There's all sorts of distractions. And Satan would love for you to come in here and take this 45, 40 minutes or whatever and just blow it. Just waste your time. Go out that door and nothing happens. Don't do that. God has you here. He wants you to learn and grow from it. So just even if it's just one thought from the sermon, that you're like, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to meditate on that throughout the week. I'm going to grow from it. In your daily life, you have to be deliberate about the Word of God. So this is the second thing. You have to be deliberate. You have to think about it. You're not going to magically wake up one morning and just start reading God's Word. You have to have a plan. How are you going to do this? And it can be any plan. The Bible doesn't have a Bible reading plan in it. Okay. I mean, any Bible plan you want. It can be the one-year Bible reading plan, two-year Bible reading plan, five-year Bible reading plan. Okay. It can be the chronological Bible reading plan. Just get a plan and do it. Read through the Bible. Okay. Some of you are in difficult. Let me give you one example from my own life that was very helpful. I went through some really difficult times, and I would read in the Book of Common Prayer, they have the Psalms divided up into morning and evening readings over 30 days. So you, have a more, so you read through all 150 psalms in 30 days, okay, with some reading in the morning, some reading in the evening. I just did that. If life's crazy, just do that. So if you read August 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and then you miss the 5th and 6th, you just pick up with the 7-day reading, day 7 reading. And the nice thing about reading the psalms is you don't have to read them chronologically. So if you miss, you know, Psalm 9 through 20, you can just pick up on 21 and you're fine. Okay? So if you have a really busy life, that's one thing you could do. It's just work your way through that. And, and then you just pick up and read it. I've read through the psalms like, lot. Okay, over several years span, I probably read through the Psalter four, five, six, seven times, at least, maybe more than that, okay? So my point is, have a plan for reading the Word of God. Men in your household, have a plan for giving your family the Word of God. It doesn't have to be expansive. It doesn't have to be huge. Read some text. Tell them about it. Hey, here's what Jesus is teaching. Let's pray. Let's sing. Hey, it doesn't have to be magical, long. Have a plan, though. Okay, you're, it's not going to happen without a plan. I'm just telling you that. The Word of God is not going to be a priority if you do not have a plan. It, you, it just won't happen. Right? And then last thing I would say, so, you know, come in here ready, have a plan, be deliberate. Stick to it even when you fall. You miss a few days, miss a few weeks, have a really busy time. Get back into it, okay? And then just cultivate in yourself a desire for the Word of God, a love for the Word of God. Psalm 119 is so good for this. Read through Psalm 119 over and over again in Psalm 119. I long for your precepts. I love your law. I delight in reading your testimonies. On and on. That's what we want. We don't want to be like, okay, I know I'm supposed to read God's word. I guess I'll go do that this morning. We don't want that. I mean, that's better than nothing, but it's not as good as, okay, Lord, I'm ready for your word. I want that word. Bring me that word. 
And what I want you to remember this morning is when you pick up that Bible and you read, and when you come in here and you listen to that sermon, you are loving one another. You're putting off those sins. That's what Peter's telling us. There's a deep connection between the love of God's word and the love of one another. We cannot love each other if we do not love this word that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Truly, it's magnificent, great, and more hearts are often cold to it in ways that really do not please you. So we pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word, help us to understand it, help us to grow. I pray for men in the households especially. They would find ways to bring the word to their family. I pray that you'd help us up here preach, to preach faithfully your word, and the hearts of the congregations would be ready to receive it. We do thank you so much for your grace and kindness. We thank you for your spirit and preserving your word. We pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.